From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. After launching from the Kennedy Space Center, flight controllers and directors in Houston, Texas, took over the operation of the Apollo missions, keeping a watchful eye on the crew and vehicle as it made the nearly quarter-million-mile trip to the moon. One of those flight directors was Jerry Griffin. I spoke with Jerry about the role controllers played during the Apollo program and how the team handled the challenges and triumphs of the first moon missions, including the now famous SCE to Ox fix that saved Apollo 12. Yeah, you know, 50 years ago, I was a lot younger, for one thing. But we were all young people. And uh, the task we were doing had never been done. So we kind of had a blank sheet of paper. And um, we kind of had to figure out how we were going to do it. And I think mission control was a, a very unique uh, situation because it had never, that had never been done. At least by the time we got in business, Yuri Gagarin had been in orbit uh, when the Soviets put him up. So we had to learn kind of, it was on-the-job training pretty much throughout. And, um, and it, it was fun. It the people in the control center were kind of wired to face challenges and deal with it and not get uptight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was that that feeling of camaraderie that kind of comes. It reminded me a little bit when I before I got to NASA, I was in the Air Force and I was in a fighter squadron. And the feeling in mission control had some of those same feelings to it. Mm-hmm. It was a team. Uh, a little bit cocky, but not arrogant about it, just confident. And uh, so it was a great time, and, and we had some, the astronauts were all good friends, and we worked closely with them, and, and it was a real team effort. And I think if there's a story to the legacy of Apollo, it was the teamwork. Uh, and the the feeling that we almost forgot the word pronoun I. We always used we, and uh, we did something or we're going to do something because we knew it It was a... And then one more point on that. Mission Control and the astronauts got most of the coverage because we were there the longest with all of the flight activities that went on, but we were... We had this huge pyramid of support below us that we couldn't have done the job without them. And it, it didn't... It involved other NASA centers. It involved the contractors that built the hardware. They were all at the ready the entire time we were in flight. If we needed a test run at at Rockwell on the uh, west coast or at Grumman on the east coast, if we needed a test run to check something out, um, they were there for us. And uh, so it was this, it was a huge team effort not just a team effort it was a huge team and it and it paid off walk me through a typical day for you there what what were the sights the sounds the smells of mission control and and what was your job well as a flight director you are um it's like a little bit like a symphony conductor Uh, you're in charge of the final product which was generally a go or a no-go for every step along the way uh, but you didn't play any of the instruments anymore. You just had, but you had to know every position and what they were doing, and then put it all together, and and come with a decision. 
it was it was we worked in teams because we had to work around the clock. So we had uh, a flight director had a team of flight controllers that were under him. And um, in those days, it was all him. Now in space station, we have uh, women flight directors. Thank goodness. And uh, but in those days, uh, our teams we had six teams that got us through all of Apollo. Uh, I was one of the six flight directors that led a team. We had colors for our team, by the way. Um, what was my, yours? Gold. I was gold team, and uh, and uh, we had. We had white, black, green, maroon, and orange, and gold. That was the six. And um, so it was sometimes if your shift might start at 1 o'clock in the morning, and sometimes it might start at 8 in the morning, like a regular uh, job. But it, once we got into flight, it, was, it, was non, it felt nonstop to me the whole time. Uh, when things were quiet, we could get a little sleep, go home and get a little sleep. I, we only lived about a half mile from the center, so I could get home pretty fast. But we all had little kids, too, and so the sleep was kind of few and far between. Um, we did have a room, by the way, where uh, we could go, and they had bunks if you wanted to try to sleep there. And I did that a few times. Uh, no windows turn the air conditioner down to stun, and uh, you could sleep pretty well. And uh, so it was around the clock. Uh, it was a little bit, there's an old adage in the fighter pilot business that, uh, what was it like, somebody asked and said, well, hours and hours of boredom interrupted by a few moments of stark terror. And, and the space business had a little bit of that to it because invariably, Every flight had some issue. Now, some were more serious than others, but but we had to deal sometimes with things we had specifically trained for, that kind of failure, and then like Apollo 13, uh, where the oxygen tank exploded, uh, we had to just kind of make up what we were going to try to do to get them back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and everything in between, all kinds of, of little things that were nagging and then uh, severe things like the lightning, for instance, too, on Apollo 12 that hit us here at the Cape as we were lifting off. Yeah, you've been involved in, in quite a few high-stress, challenging decisions like the Apollo 12 lightning yeah. strike, Apollo 13 um, helping getting that crew home. Walk me through what it's like what, when that lightning strike happened. What, what first went through your mind when you knew there was a problem? Well, Apollo 12 was uh, particularly uh, exciting for me. It was my first launch as a... Uh, flight director where, where I was in charge. I'd been on launches, but I, the first time I was the flight director for it. My first thought, because what we said, we didn't know what happened in mission control, and neither did the crew initially, but our data froze uh, when the lightning hit. It froze our data, so we had no information. The crew, the lights dimmed in the cockpit, and and then Pete had a caution and warning panel that just lit up like a Christmas tree, and he started reading those off uh, to us. And my first thought was, and this took about a millisecond, but uh, here's my first time as a launch flight director, and I'm probably going to have to abort. Um, but thank goodness the uh, Saturn V was in control. It had its own computer. We had a back—we were— 
the command module computer was the backup for the launch. We could switch to it if we had to, but it was completely down. It was kaput. Um, everything was off, and uh, but thank goodness the uh, the Saturn V was right on target. And I looked. We had a big plot board that I could see the the ascent trajectory, and we were right on it. So I. I Remembered, and again, this may be within the second second. Uh, if uh, if we're going to have to abort, don't do it now. We'd gain some altitude and make sure the parachutes have plenty of altitude to deploy correctly and get them down in the water. Well, we kept going, and then a young man uh, named John Aaron, I think he was 25 maybe, 20, he could have been 26, and uh, made the call that I think saved the mission. He said, "Try, tell him to try SCE to AUX. And it was such, such an obscure switch that none of us had ever talked about it. And, and I remember I said, what? And he said, tell him to try SCE to AUX. So I told Jerry Carr, who was the, uh, he was the Capcom, I said, SCE to AUX. And Jerry said, what? And so I repeated it. And about that time, John came. John Aaron came back in and said, "SCE to auxiliary." So Jerry read up to the crew, "SCE to auxiliary," and Pete Conrad said, "What the hell is that?" And that was his actual answer. He said, "What the hell is that?" Well, Al Bean knew where it was, and uh, he threw the switch. And when he did, we got all of our data back in the control center. SCE was signal conditioning equipment. It had to do with the data uh, shaping before it was telemetered down to the ground. And when we went to the auxiliary unit, it was okay. It must have fried the mm-hmm. it fried the first one, the lightning did. So uh, as soon as he got data back, same guy, John Aaron, could see that the fuel cells that produce power had been knocked off the circuitry. They were disconnected. So he said, tell him to reset the fuel cells. Well, he reset the fuel cells. Power came back on in the spacecraft. Um, we had all our data. And we, at this point, I was didn't determine we are going to go to orbit because it's a lot easier to get down from there if we have to come down without having a board off of a rocket. And we got to remind our listeners, this is all happening as the Saturn V is oh, barreling yeah. into space, right? Yeah, it's still going like a, like a rocket. <laughs> and... Uh, and sure enough, we got into orbit right on right on the money, mm-hmm. and um, we said, "Well, now are we, can we go to the moon or not?" And that was probably the cu- tougher call that I had to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, was, with a lot of help, but is shall we go on to the moon? Mm-hmm. And we checked things out. We checked the engine in the back to make sure all of it controlled right and so forth, and it did. And we couldn't find anything wrong. We said, "Well, let's go to the moon." Mm-hmm. And uh, so I remember how satisfying that was. Say, let's go for the moon. And the interesting thing is that we did translunar injection, headed out to the moon, and uh, that turned out to be the cleanest mission from that point on that we had in the program. We had almost nothing go wrong after that. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a good call, and it, we made it. Uh, I had to give the final go, no go, but it was a team effort to get that thing and and it showed what people could do, uh, you know, when put under pressure. And, and, you know, the funny thing about it, the room was calm. There was no uh, uh, gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands. It, uh, 
we stepped right through it and said, let's go. What's the moment in, in the Apollo 12 mission where you breathe a sigh of relief? When we, when we did the translunar injection maneuver, that's what was restarting the third stage of the Saturn to add some velocity to push us to the moon. When that engine cut off, uh, I felt we're going to make it. Uh, and, of course, they still had to separate the command module plug it into the lunar module and extract it from that third stage. Um, but we had done that before, and it, it uh, seemed to work. And uh, so, I, actually, I was, I was uh, pretty comfortable after that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Conrad, uh, Pete Conrad, the commander, uh, they, they kind of got the giggles. It's like having a, a um, near accident in an automobile, and you know, and everybody says, oh, boy, that was... And you could tell, uh, we didn't hear them real time, but when we dumped the voice tape of just what they were saying uh, on board, it was extremely funny. Uh, they were laughing. He said, good God, I didn't know what the heck was going on there. And Dick Gordon said the same thing. And, uh, and, and so did Al Bean, and they were laughing about it. And, but they, after that, they, man, they flew a good mission. They really, and it, it shows what preparation mm-hmm. can do. That was my next question, is, is how do you prepare for those, those moments of, of chaos and, and maintaining clarity through chaos and the unknown? Well, one of the, I think the reason Apollo, well, and all the space missions uh, have been successful is because of the training. And by that, I mean the simulation. Fifty years ago, even, we had simulation capability that today when I look back astounds me that it was good as it was uh, very high fidelity the astronauts were in one building in a simulator that looked a lot like a command module um, we were in mission control the two buildings were wired together and in mission control it looked just like a real flight to us and in between the two of us was a simulation group the call sign was sim soup simulation supervisor and he was diabolical he could throw in failures and see how we handled it and he would throw us one and we'd handle it he'd throw us another one we'd handle it then he'd throw us two at the same time and some most of the time we could handle that and then he would get really far out to see how far we could go they also we did something called mission rules we tried to pre-think every failure we could think of and what would we do in that failure and the sim guys were really good at finding holes in our mission rules <laughs> and they would go find one well, was their job right? yeah that's right and we would we would uh do something and it would they'd say you didn't do what the mission rules say why why didn't you or you did something that the mission rule said you shouldn't do. And so it would really get us thinking about that particular kind of failure again. We'd go back and redo the mission rules again. Well, anyway, at, at, at the time that, by the time you got through the simulations, for instance, when one day we might simulate 10 Saturn launches, some we would abort, some in the simulation, some we would go on into orbit and, and do the right thing. Um, so what, what it really came down to at the end of the day, most of the flights 
were easier than the simulations. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit like running on a beach with combat boots on and then taking them off. And uh, gee whiz, it was a lot easier. Well, the missions themselves, for the most part, except maybe 13, uh, it was easier than the simulation. So that training was absolutely essential. And I think it's the reason that we were able to get six landings done and get them all home and didn't leave anybody up there in the process. Um, We were ready. We were prepared for it. Jerry Griffin, 50 years on, what's your outlook on human exploration now and, you know, the goals of putting humans back on the moon and to go to places like Mars? Is this where you thought we'd be 50 years out? Well, 50 years ago, I thought by now we would probably already be to Mars. Uh, and uh, But we, we haven't. And I, to put the whole thing in context, I'd start here on the Earth. Um, I think the commercial sector has been very important for the future, and, and it hasn't shown itself as much yet, maybe, as it will. But it, it, I'm sorry it took so long to get the commercial guys really cranked up and interested in, in seeing the uh, potential in it. Because I think in the long run, what that's going to do is put NASA in a position more of real exploration, not just going to and from Earth orbit. Now, going to and from Earth orbit is not easy either, but it's a lot simpler than going on to the moon and and then to Mars. Um, I believe long, long term, I believe the domain of low Earth orbit is going to belong to the commercial sector. And and NASA and its international partners will focus on real exploration. I think we must go back to the moon first. And the reason I say that is it's been 50 years since we've been out there, and it's different. It's different than flying in low Earth orbit. And I really think we need the, uh, I think we need to get our mojo, our momentum back on operating in deep space. It, it's different in a lot of ways. Uh, you immediately, uh, the thing, you know, in Earth orbit, you can get guys home in a couple, three hours if you have to. Uh-huh. Uh, at the moon, the quickest you're going to do is about three days. So when you have a problem that is particularly one that's life-threatening, then you've got, you've got your hands full at the moon. At Mars, it's even worse. And the, even the calm delay at the, at the moon was only about a second and a half. And part of that was due to some switching uh, uh, points that we had in the system. But, but about a second of it almost was, was uh, even that was confusing until we got used to it because we tended to talk over each other. And uh, at, at Mars, that could be 16, 20 minutes in that range. So that tells you you got to do things differently. So I think we need a step-by-step approach here, and I think – going to the moon first and and uh, and on to Mars then and then by the way I just I think Mars is still a tiny step I think uh, but and I won't see it in my lifetime but but I, I hope it gets done pretty quickly um, and thank goodness for the commercial sector I you know it's not easy they're finding that out now there's problems you 
have explosions and trying to figure out how you're going to do all this and and uh, they're finding that out but i think i think they're good they know what they're doing and uh, and after all contractors built uh, everything we've flown on and uh, it wasn't nasa never built a uh, man uh, human spaceflight rocket and put it somebody on it that was done by our contract workforce so um, i'm just glad to see the commercial guys step up and kind of try to take over this low earth orbit and you've had a chance to spend some time with some students that are here is the outlook bright for the next generation of of rocket scientists i don't think there's any doubt that the future is very bright uh for the future uh, uh the kids and particularly these kids here at the conrad challenge uh are just phenomenal but i see it all over the country too the uh the stem education uh, effort is paying off. There's, there's just a lot of kids around the country now that are really interested, men and women, and kids of all kinds. And uh, that's great. That is, it's really great. They're going to be smarter and more ready than we were. When I, let me tell you, when, Brent, when I got to uh, NASA, uh, I had figured out on my own what an orbit was. Because when I graduated from college, there was no aerospace curriculum. There was no flight dynamics taught, uh, trajectories and all that. Um, The systems were kind of similar in terms of the things you had to do to survive and breathe and have power and all that. But uh, it just didn't exist. So we had to kind of learn it from the ground up. And... And these kids, uh, you know, I can listen to them talk now, and shoot, they're, they're further along than I was at the end of Apollo. So the, I think this bunch is going to be... Uh, now, If here's what we need, though, is we need the ones that like that challenge and the passion to go make it happen. Um, you know, we... we um, as far as I know, I don't think anybody was ever fired out of mission control. We had a few that self-eliminated themselves because they didn't like the pressure. And it's just... But most of the people in mission control, and this I think it's true today, um, they like that feeling of being on the end of the diving board with nobody else around, and they have to make the decision whether to jump or not. And... And I really think that's that's what we're we got to make sure that the kids that are coming along now that are going to be very important to um, go back into deep space, particularly, uh, have got that preparation and that willingness to take on the challenge and kind of have it in their DNA that that uh, it doesn't frighten them. And that's the difference. It's when you're facing. Uh, life and death decisions that count on you. It's uh, can you do it in a in a measured way, and uh, and not not overreact and get all panicky. And and I'll tell you a quick story. I worked as technical advisor on Apollo 13 for the movie, and uh, I never could get Ron Howard to uh, uh, do this right. But he always wanted movement in the scene. And so they actually had extra stage behind the camera shot to 
to have people walking back and forth in the control center. And I kept telling Ron, that's not accurate. We, the room was calm. It was a calm place to be. And he said, yeah, but he said, you know, I can't just have static people talking and all that. So he had to have these things in the background. But I, could, I never could convince him that the real world was that it, there was not that kind of motion. In fact, we fought against any kind of noise or motion. Just do your work. Look at your data. Talk on the, uh, on the loop. Don't talk air to air to each other. And uh, so we all hear what everybody's thinking. And, uh, but anyway, it was kind of funny. I, I ran into it uh, and never could convince him that uh, just keep it calm. I told him when I, I had just gotten off shift and my team had left right before the tank exploded on Apollo 13. And I handed, we handed off to Gene Kranz's white team. And I went out to play a ball game, a softball game. And they came out and got us. And when I went back into the control center, I was still in my sweats and uh, had a baseball hat on. And I walked back in there. I had my badge, of course, to get in. And, uh, and there were some stern faces, but the room was very calm. And I'd probably gotten there... I was probably there 30 minutes after the tank exploded. And uh, there were some serious looks, but there was no chaos, and there wasn't a bunch of people running around with their, uh, you know, with their heads cut off. It was, it was actually surprising to me, as calm as it was. And I stuck around for a while, and I said, I better go get some sleep because I'm going to have to come back in here. And I went home, couldn't sleep much, and uh, finally got up and took a shower and came back in. But... We, uh, it, the room was, that whole situation was, uh, you could tell it was a bunch of people that were prepared. And that's what these young people uh, that, we, that we are seeing here, they're going to step right into that. Jerry Griffin, this was incredible to speak with you. Thanks for your insight and, and reminiscing with us. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, it's fun to tell a story even 50 years later. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for this episode. The conversation continues online. You can follow us on Facebook, search for Are We There Yet Podcast, or send us a tweet. We're at A-W-T-Y Mars. Are we there yet, Mars? Get it? Or if you have a story idea or guest pitch, you can send me an email. We're at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. This podcast is a production of WMFE, and our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. More Apollo stories are online at wmfe.org slash Apollo. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.